As you turn to Revelation chapter 6, let me congratulate you because most folks stop reading the book of Revelation right where we left off last time at the end of chapter 5. A lot of folks jump to the end and we like to read those last few chapters of Revelation. But most people stop at the end of chapter 5 and don't really give a lot of attention to this middle part of chapter 6 to about 19. Uh, Frankly, the interpretation is harder. Uh, Living out the teaching is harder. And as you read it, as you'll see today, it's, it's really kind of scary. So most people just jump right over this part and go right to the end. However, this portion of Revelation best explains what is going on in the world right now. So we're going to spend some time looking at this portion of Revelation in this important part of God's Word. If you haven't been with us or you're like me and you just forget, let me give, you, give us a little bit of a review. In Revelation chapters 1 through 3, we saw that the risen Christ gave the Apostle John a vision of heaven. And he told John to write down what he saw so that this vision of heaven might empower the church to survive during a very difficult time. There was persecution by the Roman Empire, and as we look back historically, these visions did, in fact, strengthen the church to the point that they not only survived, but they began to thrive. And there was revival throughout the empire in a few hundred years. The Roman Empire, which was persecuting Christianity, became a Christian empire. The emperor became a Christian, so there is great power in this vision that God has given to the church, and it's been my prayer that we would derive great power from seeing this vision as well. If you were with us two weeks ago in Revelation chapter 4, we saw this panoramic view of the throne room of God, and we saw there that there is a control center in the universe, that there is a seat of power and authority, and we rejoiced at that. Because we said from our perspective in this world, we might conclude that things were otherwise. That as we see evil and chaos in our world, from our perspective, we could conclude that there is no central command. But when we view things from the perspective of Revelation chapter 4, from the throne room of God, we see that there is a throne in heaven, and there is one seated on the throne. That the throne of the universe is occupied. It is not up for grabs. And the one who sits there is holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And we said that description is important because he's thrice holy means that he's good. The fact that he's the Lord God Almighty means he has all might. He's all powerful. And if he was and is and is to come, it means that he always will be. And from that title, we conclude that if God is good and he's all powerful and he's not going away, then that means evil will not triumph over good. And as we came to that conclusion, we said that that means that seemingly powerful people do not control our future, that the one who sits on the throne controls our future, and we rejoiced at that. Last week in Revelation chapter 5, We saw the text shift from this panoramic view of the throne room of God, and it focused us down to the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And in his right hand, we saw that there was a scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. 
And we learned last week that that scroll is God's plan for making all things new. That that scroll is God's plan for making right all that is wrong. And as we heard that, we said we long for what's on that scroll. We long for God to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven so that everything is wrong may be made right. And a strong angel cried out and said, who is worthy to come and to take the scroll? And we learned that what he was saying was, who is pure enough to come before a God who is holy, holy, holy? Who is smart enough to read and understand God's plan? Who is strong enough to actually execute and carry out the plan? And John begins to weep because no one in heaven or on earth was able to do that. And one of the elders comes to John and he says, weep no more. The Lion of Judah has conquered and he is worthy to come and to take the scroll and to make all things right. And we rejoiced at that. But then something happened that changed everything. The elder told John he heard that the Lion of Judah had conquered and so he was worthy. And John turned and he looked and instead of seeing a conquering lion, he saw a lamb, a tiny lamb, a lamb that had been slain, a lamb lamb that had been slaughtered. And we said that that dichotomy between the conquering lion and the slaughtered lamb, that that changes everything. That everything is turned upside down as we are to live like the lamb and not like the lion. And what at one time seemed weak to us is actually strong. And what at one time seemed foolish to us is actually wise. Now as we get to Revelation chapter 6, the Lamb is opening those seven seals so that the scroll can be opened. And you never guess what's going to happen as these seals are opened. I thought that as the Lamb opened these seals and ushered in the kingdom of God that things would get better. But it seems things get worse. You see, as the kingdom of God breaks in, and begins to change things in this world. It upsets the status quo. It unmasks idols. It reveals evil. And the kingdom of God meets resistance. The dark powers of evil resist the kingdom of God. And it gets worse before it gets better. It's almost as if we must get the full extent of evil out on the table so that we can deal with it. Read with me and see this is the case as we come to Revelation chapter 6. I'll read the first eight verses and then pray for us and we'll dig in. Revelation chapter 6 beginning in verse 1. Hear now God's word. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal I heard the second living creature say come and out came another horse bright red its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that men should slay one another and he was given a great sword. 
When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would open our minds now to understand what these words mean. I pray that you would open up our hearts to receive what it is that you have to say to your people. And I ask you again, even today, that you would use these words as you did so many centuries ago to strengthen your people so that your church might endure difficult things. And I pray even now that you'd be willing to do that, even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As these first four seals on the scroll are opened, it results in the coming of what you may have heard of before as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That's what we see here in chapter 6. These four horsemen represent the kinds of things that begin to happen when the kingdom of God begins to break into our world. You see, as the kingdom of God comes, there is resistance and opposition, which results in these types of things. It results in false prophets, in war and in violence, in famine and economic hardship, and in diseases and death. Let me show you those from the text um, as we look at it together. In verse 1, when the first seal is opened, a white horse with a rider comes out. Now, you need to understand this rider that has a bow, and he is given one crown on his head. And to understand what this is, you need to know that in Revelation 19, Jesus comes riding on a white horse. But Jesus has a sword and not a bow, and he is crowned with many crowns instead of just having one crown. So when we see this rider on a white horse, we're to conclude that this is something like Jesus but not Jesus himself. Uh, Additionally, to help us understand what this means, I would note that the other three horses are bad news, so this horse doesn't seem to be very good news because it's with the other four. The conquer language that's used there in verse 2 where it says he came out conquering and to conquer, that language is used in Revelation chapter 11 and again in Revelation chapter 13 of the beast that comes up to oppress God's people. And so this one, if he does the same things as the beast, uh, that language indicates that he is is allied with these dark forces that oppose the kingdom of God. And perhaps most clearly, Jesus himself in Matthew 24, when he is talking to his disciples about signs of the end of the age, he says that a sign of his coming at the end of the age will be the fact that he is preceded by false messiahs and false prophets who mislead people. 
So this white horse with a rider stands for false prophets, those who mimic Jesus but represent dark spiritual forces who try to deceive and conquer and lead people astray. Jesus himself in Mark chapter 13 down around verse 22 tells us that there will be false messiahs and false prophets, that they will arise, they will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, even the elect if that would be possible. And so he cautions his followers to be on their guard. Yeah, there it is, because Jesus has told us these things beforehand. There's the application from Jesus, right? That as a church, we need to be on our guard against people who would lead us astray, and he's warned us about this ahead of time. We saw this warning in Revelation 2 and 3. There was false teaching going on in those churches, and Jesus had pointed that out as something that was displeasing to him. The Apostle Paul warns us of this when we were in 2 Timothy earlier this year when he charges Timothy to preach the word. He goes on to say that there will be those in the last days who gather preachers around them to say what their itching ears long to hear. But that Timothy is to preach the word. So as the people of God, if we're to watch out for false teaching, we need to be on our guard. But how do we know what is false, what is not false? How do we know what it is that's true? How do we know what's leading us astray? And again, we come back to what we've said so many times. We must be a people of the word. If what a teacher says is in this book and consistent with what is in here, then we know that it is true. And if someone is teaching something that is not found in here, that is inconsistent with God's word, then as the people of God, we know it's not true. We've said over and over again, that if we're not in the word, we will believe lies. We'll be led astray and lead others astray. So it's important that we're in the word. I see several of you that were with us on the Wednesday night men's Bible study. And if you don't do that, Wednesdays at 6.30, we would love to have you join us. But we went through and watched a movie called American Gospel. We watched the first one, Christ Alone. Um, an excellent explanation and sort of dissection of false teaching that goes on even to this day. There's another movie that I commend to you, American Gospel, Christ Crucified. Excellent movies. Helps you to see what kind of false teaching is out there now. But for us, we want to follow what's in God's Word, and that will help us determine what is right and what is wrong. When the second seal is opened, a red horse comes out. This bright red horse, of course, red is the color of blood. And so this horse and this rider represent war and violence as the one riding it is permitted to take peace from the earth. And so men kill one another as a result. Physical conflict is always the eventual result of spiritual evil. And when people don't take the way of the lamb and try to be a conquering lion, which in reality is the way of the beast, it leads to war and to violence. Don't Google it right now, but if you do a web search online for war and violence, you will see that the last hundred years of history on this earth is the worst. As we fought two world wars and there is widespread war and violence these last hundred years, the likes of which we have not seen ever before on the face of the earth. And so this book seems to be very accurate in its portrayal of what has happened. And so we can trust it when it talks about what will happen. The third seal. This one's a little more confusing. It's a black horse 
It represents famine and economic hardship. Where do we get that? If you look in verse 6, he has this pair of scales in his hand. In the Western world, we tend to associate scales with scales of justice and the legal system. That is not what these people would have thought. They would have thought commerce, weighing things out uh, and buying and selling them. And the scales here shows rationing during a time of scarcity. The voice from the throne that talks about a quart of wheat for a denarius, the folks listening in that day would say, wow, that's an outrageous price. So they would recognize that there's inflation going on in this prophecy. And so there's famine because of the scarcity and the rationing of resources. And there's inflation and economic hardship. What does this voice mean? It's a strange saying. What does he say? He says there in verse 6, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. What do we make of this? Well, a quart of wheat is what one person would generally eat in one day. And a denarius was what a wage earner would make in one day. So basically what he's saying is people are working a full day just to feed themselves. And that's all they can do. They're just working to survive. And they're surviving so that they can work. And that's the situation that they're in. Well, what if you have a family? Well, you have to buy a cheaper form of grain. So you can get three quarts of barley for a denarius if you have more to feed than just yourself. And then, of course, there at the end, it says, you know, it shows us God's grace in limiting the extent of the famine because he says, don't harm the oil and the wine. You see, the roots of the olive and of the grape go deeper into the soil. And he's saying, listen, I don't want this famine to affect those things so that they will still be available for people to consume. The fourth seal. This one's easier. When it says there's a pale horse and it has a rider named Death, it's a little easier to interpret. The pale rider, the horse stands for Death, right? Because it tells us that in the text. It says, Hades accompanies him. Hades is the place of the dead. So the image is is that death or the grave is riding through a fourth of the earth, gathering corpses together through the sword, which would seem to affirm our interpretation of the red horse as war and violence. He kills people through famine, which would seem to affirm our interpretation of the black horse as famine. And then it says he also uses pestilence, and death by wild beasts of the earth. I think the beasts are apparent, but let's talk about pestilence for a minute. Do you know what pestilence is? I grew up as a kid in a Southern Baptist church, and Southern Baptists educate their children well. And I was in Sunday school every week, and the only time I had ever heard the term pestilence was in association with the Exodus story, right, where God sends the plagues, to free his people from Egypt. And one of the plagues is pestilence. I didn't know what that was as a kid. But I knew that part of the plagues were like flies and gnats and frogs. And all those things seemed like pests to me. So I thought pestilence was like insects or like frogs or like gnats or like something you would call Cook's Pest Control in order to deal with, right? That is not what pestilence is. Pestilence is disease. It's a plague. It would be something like a pandemic. 
And of course, there have been plagues and pandemics throughout the history of the earth, but we face one at this very moment. And Revelation chapter 6 best explains what is going on in the world right now. Watch the news, read the newspaper, or whatever your source of news is. The four horsemen show us that every at, since the time Jesus came into the world that first Christmas Eve, the powers of evil have been trying to stop the spread of God's kingdom, and it continues to this day. That we see brokenness, that we see evil, we see chaos. And some people read Revelation and they entertain the idea that God's people are somehow immune from all this difficulty. And some people actually teach that God's people are taken out of the world to avoid all this clashing of kingdoms. But that's not what Revelation says. The whole point of Revelation is to warn God's people of what is to come so that we won't be surprised and we can endure in the hardship to the very end. So God's people are certainly not immune from the difficulties that come from the clashing of kingdoms. And you see that clearly with the fifth seal. Look at that with me beginning in verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Oh my. Are the people of God immune from this destruction? Absolutely not. Verse 11 says that there will be more people killed because of their testimony that is consistent with the word of God. And if you read the news, you know that that continues to this day. That God's people will be killed as these kingdoms clash. There will be martyrs. God's people are not immune from these things that happen on the earth. I think you can also see why many people stop reading Revelation at Revelation chapter 5 and skip to the end. It's kind of scary. It's not pleasant to think about. But it's important that we do. So before you skip to the end, before we finish these seals, let me just give you a little application right here. Let's, let's think about these things together. Why would God and his providence have this in his word? Here's why. Because Jesus is so honest with his people. Because the Bible is so real. Listen to me. What this book says fits reality. This book does describe what has happened in the world and what is happening now. And so it gives it great credibility when it talks about what will happen in the future. It is a real description of what we see in the world, but it's real without becoming cynical, without losing hope. It's one of the reasons why this is here, because God is being honest with us. And he's telling us that for his people, life in this world will be hard. As we attempt to live a life of grace like the Lamb, as we follow God in this world that is in rebellion against God, life will be hard. So, beloved, 
Don't have this idea that if we have enough faith, that if we pray enough, that if we're obedient enough, that somehow we can live a life free of hardship or pain or tears because that is not what this book teaches. In fact, if you think about it, the book assures us, and this is where we'll land today, that there is a day coming sometime in the future where God will wipe every tear from our eyes when we will cry no more because there's no more brokenness. But by implication, if there's a day coming when we cry no more tears, by implication that means today we're going to cry some tears. And there's going to be some brokenness. And God is so real and so honest to shoot us straight and to tell us that from the very beginning. Another thing I see very clearly here, the reassurance that comes, is that evil is not in control. Evil is not the one on the throne. And you may not see it at first, but the text goes to great pains to show you that God is the one who is still in control. Did you pick up on it? Look, every one of these seals, it's emphasized. In verse 2, this white horse comes and a crown was given to him. He didn't take a crown. He didn't earn a crown. A crown was given to him. Or look at the second seal, the red horse. It was right he was permitted to take peace from the earth. He was given a great sword. Or the third seal, the black horse comes, and we talked about how the effects of the famine are limited so that the oil and the wine are not harmed. The fourth seal, the pale horse comes, and he was given authority over a fourth of the earth. The, that's a lot, but it's limited. God draws the lines of where evil can go and how widespread the destruction can be. Even the martyrs in the, sixth, in the fifth seal, even those martyrs, God says, wait, be patient until all those that are going to be killed are killed. Think about that. That means that the number of martyrs is limited. That there comes a time when the last person gives their life for the testimony of the word of God and God says, that's it, no more, it ends now. God is still in charge. He has not abandoned us. Evil is on a leash. It can only go as far as God allows it to go. And one day, evil and suffering will be no more. So we endure in this day knowing that the end of evil and suffering is coming. Listen to me. The promise of revelation is not that the people of God will, endure, will avoid suffering. The promise of revelation is that the people of God will endure suffering to the very end. The promise of revelation is that the people of God will overcome their suffering and live until that day, live to see the day that all things are made right. The promise of the book of Revelation is that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of the living God. And because we know a day is coming when God will make all things right, we can endure in this day even when everything seems to be going wrong. That's the teaching of the book of Revelation. The sixth seal. If you read the end of this chapter, you see in apocalyptic language, a crisis comes. Maybe it's the final crisis as the end comes. Maybe it's just showing upheaval and crisis along the way. I don't know. There are several of these ends or crises that come in the book of Revelation. And it may be telling the same story. It may be repeating it. I don't know. 
But as the, this, uh, this crisis comes, there's an earthquake, heaven quakes, the sun is black and the moon turns like blood, the stars fall from the sky, the sky is folded up. But what I want you to see is the reaction of people to this opening of the sixth seal as this crisis comes. I want you to see, beginning in, first, in verse 15, what even the greatest and most powerful on the earth, how they respond. Look with me in verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Even the greatest on the earth cannot withstand the coming judgment of God. We often talk about God being a God who is full of grace and of mercy, and that is true, and you'll hear more about it if you stay in the service. But to be faithful to this book, I must tell you, a day is coming when God comes in wrath to judge. And on that day, even the greatest of this world cannot stand. They cannot endure. And this question ends chapter 6, who can stand? And it's just hanging there. And I said to Lee Taylor this week, I can't end at chapter 6. i got to go into chapter 7. I can't just stop there. He said, we got communion this week. And I said, I know, but we got, I got to keep going because there's hope in chapter 7. Because you see, when you read chapter 6, there are only two alternatives when you look at 6 and 7. Either people are going to have the wrath of the Lamb fall on them, or if you read Revelation, the end of 7 all the way to 14, those who follow the Lamb will endure and overcome and prevail. Those are the only two alternatives. Receive the wrath of the Lamb or be a follower of the Lamb. Let me show you the hope that is available to us. Revelation chapter 7. There are two visions here. The first vision answers the question, who can stand, that we saw at the end of chapter 6. The second vision helps us to stand in hard times by showing us what it is that we're enduring for. What is it that we look forward to that helps us to persevere in the moment? So let's look at those two quickly. The first vision in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 7 answers this question, who can stand? And the answer is, those who are sealed with the seal of the living God. Now, who are those folks? What the time, the original audience, when they heard those who were sealed, they would think slaves were sealed on their foreheads so that they, you knew who they belonged to. And John here, um, here's the number of those who will be sealed with the seal. And in verse 4, he says, I heard the number of those sealed, and it's 144,000 from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then there's this breakdown that happens. And in our culture, there's a, a lot of speculation around the 144,000, some uh, sects will tell you that only 144,000 people will be saved, but that's not what's going on here. The 144,000 is a symbolic number which represents the complete people of God from the Old and New Testament eras. It's all the children of God, all the elect from all time. And I usually like to show you all my hard exegetical work because, number one, I want you to learn to do that work and number two, I want you to see that what I'm telling you is in the Scripture. 
But because I want to get to this second vision that gives us great hope, I'm taking a shortcut and just giving you the bottom line. It stands for the people of God from the Old and New Testament eras. But if you want to see how I got there, go to the website, RedeemerShoals.com slash online, where you would see the video of this service. And there's a PDF, a link to a PDF, one page that explains the 144,000 and how I got there. Okay? But that's who it is. Who can stand? Those who have been sealed with the seal of the living God. All of God's people, the elect from all time. That's the answer to number one, who can stand. The second vision. I want to go ahead and get there before I lose you. Before you get too tired. Because this is where the power comes from. Listen. This is where the power to stand in difficult times comes from. Because we're told what it is that we're enduring for, what it is that we have to look forward to. And so I want to spend my time here on the second vision. And I want you to hear this so it will help you to stand during difficult times. What does God has, have for his children at the end of all things? Look with me beginning in verse 9. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. <laughs> and I'm sorry to interrupt, but... That would send a cut against the 144,000 being a literal statistic, right? If it's a crowd that nobody can number that was described as only Jewish, but now it's, 100, now it's a crowd nobody can number from every tribe and nation and people group, you either have to say it's inconsistent or it's symbolic in some way. But anyway, I digress. Let me keep going. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around, and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever Amen. If you're wondering who all these people are around the throne, go back and listen to the sermon on Revelation chapter 4. We went through who all these folks are. But we concluded there that if you asked who they were, they would say, don't worry about me, just look at the one who's sitting on the throne. And they tend to be pointing our attention there because he is worthy of glory and wisdom and honor and power forever. Verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. How about that imagery? The lamb becomes a shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. People of God. After this world of tears is made new by our God, we will walk closely intimately with the lamb who will be our shepherd we will enjoy a closer more intimate relationship with the risen christ for all eternity in a world where there will be no more falsehood and lies in a world where there will be no more war and violence 
in a world with no more economic hardship and famine, and in a world with no more disease or death. Together, these two visions remind us that our hope is not in this world. Our hope is that we belong to Jesus, and he knows those who are his because he seals us with his seal. We are secure in Christ. So we will endure hard things because we belong to God and nothing can separate us from his love. No matter what happens, we will be with him. So I charge you, keep this hope of Revelation 7 in your mind. Take time to meditate on this. Because keeping clearly in our minds the vision of Revelation 7, that is the only way that we endure the destruction and judgment described in Revelation chapter 6 that God's people will face. This clashing of kingdoms, these powers that are at work in the world who oppose the kingdom of God even now as it comes in our midst. Let's pray and ask God to make us a people who endure. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are so honest with us and you tell us how things are going to be. Thank you for your honesty, for your candor. And I pray that as you forewarn us, we would be a people who can endure hard things because we belong to you. Because we have great hope that a day is coming that you will make all things right. And we can endure in this day because of what you will do in the days to come. Oh, Father, make us a people who endure for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.